0: Beyond the, he- Beyond the headlines, this is World Insight.
1: Hello and welcome to World Insight with me Tian Wei. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly pays an official visit to China this week. He is the highest-ranking British official visit to China in five years. Last month, Cleverly met Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Wang said both sides should quote show their responsibility as major countries and jointly tackle global challenges. Cleverley seeks to keep high-level exchanges and strategic communication with China as a leg-up for bilateral ties. But Cleverley's words, some analysts suggest, stand in contrast to those of British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak earlier. In his first major foreign policy speech last year, Sunak spoke of tougher relations between China and Britain. Nonetheless, economic ties between the two countries remain robust. Last year, the UK services and exports to China grew 7.2% year-on-year year to the tune of 670 million pounds. Britain's imports from China, meanwhile, expanded nearly 35%, worth about 800 million pounds. So, what does the Foreign Secretary's visit to China mean for the relations between the two countries? Let's have our panelists' opinion. For more on China-British ties, in London, Ian Begg, a Professor Research Fellow at the European Institute of the London School of Economics and Political Science. In Beijing, Wang Yiwei, Zhang Monet Chair Professor, Director of the Center for European Studies from Renmin University of China. Welcome to both of you. First of all, I would like to greet Professor Begg. Mr. Begg, a long time no see. It's been years.
0: Maybe not years, Wei, but uh, some time.
1: Yeah. First of all, I would like to hear from both of you, Mr. Beck and Professor Wang, your thoughts on once in five years, a ministerial level official from the United Kingdom visiting China. How much do you hope that he and his Chinese counterpart could touch on, Mr. Beck?
0: And we've had this period of, I won't call it quite cold war, but cold relations, which has been motivated by concerns about the strategic contest between the Europeans, the Americans and the Chinese, in which China has been portrayed in much of the West as being more hostile than it used to be. So I'm optimistic that this is the start of an unfreezing of that kind of relationship. Mm.
1: Mr. Becker, talk about the the circumstances with the pandemic, and also talk about the impressions and images issue about China in the eyes of so-called West. Let's go to Professor Wang. What do you see once in five years, ministerial official visiting to China very first time?
2: Well, yes, of course, uh, pandemic, make uh, China and the British uh, in general, the Western relations in the trouble. They are worried about China's uh, lockdown, the, you know, the millions of this population in the city, and the supply chain too much rely on China. But of course, no no in-person meeting, many misperceptions also because of that. And also the U.S. policy towards China improved. So UK definitely also impacted by the American policy towards China.
1: According to the Foreign Secretary, Secretary Clever said this, nor do I see anything inevitable about conflict between China and the United States and the wider West we are not compelled to be prisoners of what Graham Allison called the Suicidus trap, whereby a rising power follows the trajectory of ancient Athens and collides head on with an established superpower." End of quote. Now, Mr. Begg, how much do you see a quote like this is the true realization of the nature of relations with China by the UK?
0: I think what what we're seeing with James Cleverley's visit and the words he uses is that he's trying to strike a balance between a number of domestic pressures inside the UK which want to be tough on China and an economic reality which wants to be much more open with China, plus trying to re-engage China in the international relations which were there in the past. Hong Kong for the UK was a particular trigger of that kind of sentiment. And there is a concern in the background about Taiwan. So all these things come together to lead many in the UK to, be to say we should be much more cautious about China, very wary of Chinese intentions, even though we know the economic relationship with has to be mm. important. So it's this tension between all these different movements that I think motivates Cleverley's remarks. He yeah. is trying to pave the way to better relations, but he's also being held back by his domestic audience.
1: Professor Wang, in China, also is concerned about the UK's position toward the Hong Kong issue. Meanwhile, on the Taiwan question, China has stated very clearly its uh, stance. So, And they call it uh, one of the uh, most important fundamental interests of China. So, uh, Professor Wang, how do you see what uh, Mr. Beck lined out as some of the issues that the UK is looking at China?
2: Well, as Minister Wang Yi uh, told uh, uh, his counterpart, the British foreign uh, minister, uh, in the eyes of China, uh, UK, of course, is a uh, natural great power. For permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, it's political power, economic and financial power, like London uh, is the uh, most uh, important uh, international financial centre. So that's the reason we saw golden uh, arrow. Uh, the RMB internationalization. That, internationalization, and thirdly, uh, British also is a great cultural power, you know, cultural innovation, it's very diverse. So China definitely needs to cooperate with uh, Britain in dealing with uh, the climate change, AI, the human challenges we're all facing. But unfortunately, uh, the Conservative Party, they're not strong uh, domestically. So the change of the Prime Minister, the government members too frequently, so, make China as a scapegoat sometimes. They cannot have the strong, coherent, and even uh, ambitious the policy towards China. So that really uh, stagnant. It's not just because of China, also from the British side.
1: Mr. Begg, now, even with the apparent melting of the eyes, in terms of images, in terms of understanding, and also contacts with one another, how much can this visit and the follow-up actions by the UK side will be able to facilitate an improvement of relations? How much is there in terms of internal politics so that the current administration in next two to three months could see that it has the ability in making sure this relationship could get better
0: Well, I think there is capacity to do that, and a degree of optimism in London. The first is the forthcoming G20 meeting, where it's hoped that uh, President Xi Jinping will have a meeting with Rishi Sunak, perhaps in the sidelines of that meeting, with a view to trying to normalize relations. The second is that the UK is very keen to promote regulation of artificial intelligence and wants to place itself at the center of initiatives to regulate artificial intelligence globally. Clearly, China is one of the biggest players in AI, and therefore, engaging with China to bring it into that initiative by the UK is something that's a strong British priority. So if you put these things things together, you begin to see a pathway towards, normalization is one of these difficult words, but at least an improvement of relations between the two sides.
1: Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, things could become more vulnerable next year with the U.S. election. It's already having a traumatic impact on uh, international politics. Not to mention right now, some in the U.S. Uh, were trying to seek uh, uh, rivalry with China. So how do you see the U.K.'s ability to be able to be consistent in its stand toward China?
0: Well, the U.K. is caught because it, it tends to follow the American line. behind the American concerns about uh, security in relation to China, about economic security because of China's dominance of uh, certain activities. And the expression that you hear in Europe of strategic autonomy is largely targeted at China. It's trying to say to to the domestic interests, we want to protect ourselves from being overly dependent on China because of what we saw during the pandemic, which was the exposure to things that China was no longer exporting. All these things come together in trying to pull together consistent re- response with the Americans, and it is, as Professor Wong said earlier, also related to what's going on in Ukraine. So all these things come together. Now, the wild card in all this is what happens in the U.S. We look at across the Atlantic with amazement sometimes at what's going on in American politics, and I think we just, nobody can really predict what happens next thing.
1: Professor Wong, what Mr. Begg said once taken note of How do you see China will be able to contribute to the improving of relations given all these circumstances we mentioned
2: earlier? I think the bilateral and multilateral, we can uh, improve our relations. For the multilateral, besides the G20, of course, we hope they have the summit because the G7 members, only Premier uh, Sunak, uh, never met uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. The schedule to meet uh, in, in Bali last uh, December, but, uh, you know, postponed. And, uh, for the climate change, uh, the COP28, what happened in, uh, Dubai, you know, the new monarchy is also climate change fighter. So we, we need to co- collaborate and also AI, uh, as, uh, the British, the friends mentioned about it. That's a very important topic. Bilaterally, China, I think within Chinese modernization, finance, and, uh, we say, Many, many areas uh, the UK can, you know, can benefit from the Chinese new opening reform, uh, including the Road initiative. Many projects, uh, financing and uh, software, uh, and the British uh, the, enjoys uh, a huge comparative advantage in the Chinese modernization. Mm.
1: Meanwhile, on the other hand, Mr. Wang, Professor, how do you see China understand the issue of national security and that issue in others' eyes? Meanwhile, under the current circumstances, how would China pragmatically walk its talk in terms of working with others in smoothing up relations, uh, despite various circumstances earlier?
2: But today, I think the, the background is it's not one globalization anymore. So-called the new liberalism driven globalization Washington consensus is dead. This uh, is one global supply chain, one global value chain. But now they have uh, maybe two or even three, even globalization, global regionalization, global fractionalization. So that makes everything about national security, which you should be letting the companies, the market, to deal with about the security. It's not a necessary national security. But now the politicians are actually polarized of the uh, uh, security meaning or safety. There's no absolute security. When a mutual independence period, where both sides actually need each other, this is very natural. But now it's not a national security, it's a safety, and then absolute security, and then uh, exclusive security make the, the world you know, in danger.
1: Wang Yiwei Yinbeg. Gentlemen, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. This is World Insight coming up. South African Trade Minister Abraham Batel is in high spirits and upbeat about the BRICS and cooperation among the emerging economies after months of summit preparations and the bigger work ahead. Welcome back. This is World Insight with me, Tian Wei. South African Minister of Trade and Industry, Abraham Patel, has been an active figure in bringing stakeholders together for the BRICS Leaders' Meeting earlier and the BRICS Business Community as well. As one who loves to talk about history and BRICS synergy, he is so excited about the achievements of the recent BRICS Summit. On the summit sidelines in Johannesburg, I caught up with him between his bilateral meetings. Here is our conversation then. The expansion of BRICS with many important players from different continents, what does that mean for the new vigor as the different presidents have put it in their speeches and also new momentum in terms of global supply chains and also interactions among the BRICS economies?
3: The expansion of BRICS, which is more than doubling the number of members, has a number of positive effects. First it brings, it it enlarges the markets in BRICS, and that's very important. More than 400 million additional consumers come in, but it also brings new ideas, new raw materials and resources and new technologies. And thirdly, it consolidates the idea that the voice of the global south is important, that we need a world that is fair that every country has the right to its path of development and that should be protected and that we, we are able to achieve what we do by cooperating. BRICS is not an exclusive body. We don't only want to trade with each other or invest in each other. We want a system where the world trades with each other and the world invests in each other. And measures where uh, we decouple from each other is not good for society, it's not good for the world. And so I think there is a new energy, a new vigor that comes with this additional membership. And bear in mind that there are many other countries that want to join BRICS. And within one bite, we were only able to deal with um, six countries. But BRICS will no doubt um, be receiving many more expressions of interest and membership applications. And I know that um, that BRICS will grow both in size but also in influence mm.
1: looking at these six uh, new members a lot of them are energy intensive countries at least originally uae saudi arabia and also uh, even some of the latin american countries so how do you see on the global supply chain the brics countries can better cooperate with one another and if there were cases like a further disruption of global supply chain how can the economies support one another
3: One of the advantages that BRICS brings to uh, national economies is the the close working relationship between BRICS ministers and heads of state. It means then during periods of disruption, we can leverage off those relationships to unblock those disruptions, to ensure that there are stable stable supply chains uh, and that where there are gaps, they are quickly addressed. Energy is one such area, but there's also a common commitment in, in BRICS to promote green energy, to recognize that climate change is real, that climate change will cause devastation to the lives, not of future generations only, but even of our generation. Mm. And that therefore we need to take the combined know-how and uh, technologies and help to green the economies of the BRICS countries, BRICS plus countries, Mm. the 11 countries and more. China today is the world's biggest producer of green component uh, that goes into wind and solar plants mm-hmm. and china is also the world's biggest producer of electric vehicles and so those pioneering technologies that china has developed can find expression through the building of um, plants uh, factories yeah, on the african continent and in other brics countries where china takes that technology mm. and makes it available the chinese business people will get a return on, on investment the countries where they invest in will get more jobs and an an opportunity to deepen the supply chains. So energy is both about the traditional energy that has powered the 20th century, but it's also about the new power sources of the 21st century.
1: This time, Mr. Minister, as you have noticed that uh, both sides, China and South Africa has been focusing on not only infrastructure building, but also industrialization as the African continent is embracing both from the first industrialization all the way to the fourth industrialization. So how would you expect this expansion and discussions among you and your counterparts, for example, be able to benefit and let African continent to embrace these industrializations at the same time, not has to go through every historical process.
3: Yes. So I want to draw first the connection between infrastructure and industrialization. Infrastructure lays the basis. You need rail lines, you need power supply and so on, but industrialization creates the market. If you don't have a growing and thriving market, you can't pay for your infrastructure so uh, you seek always just to have them as donations we don't want the economic growth of africa to be constrained because we rely on donations we want a vibrant african economy that can pay for the infrastructure investment and for that you need industrialization so what we're looking at now is using the mineral base of the african continent together with the technologies of brics countries those technologies can help to set up battery production plants. CATL from China is the world's biggest uh, battery uh, producer. They make batteries for cars, but also for power grid systems. Mm. And uh, we've pointed them to the the opportunities to come and set up an operation here on the African continent. Mm. Build those batteries here too. Yes, of course, build them in China, but also build them in Africa. Mm. And so we will develop regional value chains between African countries that would enable all countries to benefit. I met uh, today with the Zambian Minister of Trade, Mm -hmm. and Zambia has enormous uh, resources of copper. Copper would be used in electric vehicles, they would be used in many different applications, and Zambia also wants to make sure that that copper is processed here on the African continent. Mm -hmm. So there's a a win-win opportunity between China and South Africa, between BRICS and the African continent, Mm -hmm and we can at the moment china has generated quite significant surpluses that has helped to power the chinese economy there's an opportunity for some of that capital surplus to be invested in commercially viable projects here on the african continent which then gives a dividend flow that goes back to china and strengthens the standard of living of the Chinese people. Point out,
1: Mr. Minister, the financing is a crucial issue right now. Of course, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions uh, uh, going on in, uh, for example, media reporting about the so-called African debt, uh, For so-called African debt, for example, to China. Uh, but we understand about uh, 56% of uh, uh, racial uh, GDP uh, for African nations only for the debt. Uh, that's much lower than many of the developed economies. And meanwhile, three uh, three quarters of those debts are full to international financial institutions, rather to other single economies such as China. So how do you see you know the misconceptions that people have about the so-called African debt trap, and also the urgent need and right understanding of financing for Africa, including, of course, South Africa? Yes. Yeah.
3: So I trace the challenge of development and debt to the end of the Second World War. When the Bretton Woods institutions were set up, the World Bank and the IMF, the voices of the Global South was quite weak. And so the shareholding in those institutions and the level of support that the IMF and the World Bank has given African countries has been, first of all, too low, secondly too expensive, and thirdly with too many conditions. What Africa needs? is productive investment. More than debt, it needs productive investment, where companies invest in a factory that makes profit and uh, that can sell its goods. And so that's the industrialization part. So I don't think we can, uh, that it is an appropriate thing to blame a country for the debt challenges. It's an underdevelopment trap that African countries have not emerged from at the end of colonialism. We saw Even though many African countries got political freedom, the economic chains were still there. And we want to break those chains. We want to work uh, very collaboratively with everybody. We want to work with the European Union and the United Kingdom. We want to work with the United States, with China, with India, with Indonesia. The private sector as well, all the the stakeholders. Exactly. Uh, This is about an open world, a world that says when people interact, when they travel, when they exchange ideas, when they study in each other's countries, when they invest, when they, um, they eat the kind of products.
1: Having said that, though, there's another question about the Belt and Road Initiative. Yes. This is already 10th anniversary of that. And also it coincides with the 25th anniversary of China and South Africa uh, diplomatic relations. Now, how do you see the depth and the sophistication the BRI has become? and how much of that has been contributed by emerging economies like South Africa and also later the African continent.
3: So as I I see the Belt and Road Initiative, it's really an attempt to build the transport and logistic infrastructure to enable trade, tourism, Mm -hmm. friendship, investment. And all of those are important. We all need to have connections with each other. In the old days, the Silk Road was a major uh, moment where different parts of the world could trade with each other. Today, it's not only the Eurasian landmass where the original Silk Road was. The world has become more diversified. All parts of the world is now connected. And uh, initiative like the Belt and Road Initiative can help to connect people. And developing countries can benefit from easier access to markets. Mm. We want to get into the Chinese market. We want to sell our manufactured products there. We want to sell, in South Africa we produce, for example, something with uh, red meat. Mm. It's a dried red meat, it's called boltong. It is so tasty. There I guess are, that. You've I had
1: that. Very good. And
3: is it very good? Yeah,
1: it is. There I'm are, not doing commercials for South Africa. Well,
3: yeah. 1.4 billion Chinese people have not yet been exposed <laughs> to it.
1: And uh, see, this is the trade minister we are talking to. <laughs> yes, so,
3: Belt and Road provides an infrastructure where we can trade with each other, we can travel, yeah. we can invest, right. and that is a good thing.
1: And that's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team. Bye for now.